please do your own research. Nothing here is investment advice. So we're going to chat about credit acceptance today and the fruits of uh, a little bit of work, a little bit of time that we've been spending on the business. Um, this, from, from my vantage point, this has seemed like some of the most demanding field work we have ever conducted in terms of the actual mechanics of, of finding people. I think it's a, also quite a good taste of probably a lot more what's to come as well. So this was our first survey, a new form of survey. It's been something I've been thinking about for, for a long time in terms of this format. I've been speaking about it for the last couple of years. I only got around to actually doing this this, this format, well, last month or this month. Um, and that comes from, again, a, a hypothesis of the fact that back to what we've previously discussed where there are some parts of industries that are fairly opaque that actually are pretty crucial in understanding the the intrinsic value of a company or the structural advantage of the company that that they might have and that that could range from you know, we spoke about high previously the aftermarket truly understanding how and why airline mros buy certain services not only pmas but der's mro you know um usm or, or kind of any type of mro service or even wayfair right and and, and the suppliers of, of wayfair and we previously discussed about castle gate penetration so there's certain ways that we can aggregate and source many credible executives or primary sources of knowledge to then help us understand more about the drivers of that and i think the reason why i think this is a pretty interesting format is because firstly a lot of the surveys that are out in, that are in, in 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 the industry well firstly there's not many in our industry but those where there are surveys they're all consumer surveys you know they're all like uh, bmw and mercedes want to know how strong their brand is in leicester <laughs> you know and they'll do like a survey on you gov of like ten thousand people and say do you like beamers or mercs <laughs> you know and but actually there's not many people asking 20 10 20 50 dealers auto dealers of well where'd you get your financing from for this type of customer you know and so probably because it's uneconomical <laughs> that's that's what we figured out is it takes a lot of work to actually get that um it's part of the reason why it doesn't exist but I think with our model and the way our product's evolving is that we can we can really do this work within a li- within a wider library of, of of content that is that is quite powerful. And I think CAC is the first business that we, that we chose to do partly because we actually made friends of a couple of dealers. <laughs> That's, that was the main reason, um, and, and we basically were in the networks of, of dealers, chatting to these dealers quite often, and you know. One of our analysts was, was was great on that, and 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 he is basically best mates with Dylan now, <laughs> and so we were we were plugged into that network, and so that come up, you know, was obviously exploring CAC and 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 there's a couple of key questions that 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 come out of that from from our own research and speaking to clients, which was you know, really two main questions. Firstly, how can they they've hit a bit of a ceiling in 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 loan volume growth, and and the question is, can they why is that a ceiling what how can they grow how can they grow their loan volume you know so and the second question was 
was more specifically around CAPS, which is their technology platform, which does the pricing for their loans. And there were questions around, you know, CAC are currently going for a big, they spend a lot of money on a technology upgrade on CAPS. And there was a feeling from some investors that CAPS was very antiquated and basically one of the reasons why loan volume wasn't growing. Right? It was too clunky and there was some friction in the process that wasn't driving that loan volume. So that was the context that we actually thought, okay, well, we've got we've got a couple of questions here that we think are quite important for the, for one part of the you know for an important for an important part of the of the value driver of, of CAC, which is loan volume growth. There's a couple of questions here, hypotheses that we can go and test with dealers, and then we just got to go and find the dealers. But I think you know partly. If we have a running list of all these hypotheses of, of, of companies we're studying that we think are interesting. We have a running list of those of, of hypotheses that we have, and then we just we can we we pick and choose which ones to cover based on the, the executives that we find or, or come across. But CAC is one that is it's a great example of part of, of industries, you know, again B two B industries specifically or typically that we're in a very good spot to shed a light on in how just the mechanics of how it works and the survey was quite simple it's literally like okay you're a dealer how many cars you sell a month you know what's your average FIFO score and then tell me how you choose a lender why did you choose Westlake why did you choose CAC how you know what would make you choose more CAC what what and and then how do you use CAPs how does CAPs compare to the others and you and so we've done that for 11 you know, we've got 11 dealers we could have we could have aggregated more but we wanted to test this out it's the first one we've done so we wanted to test it quite and to get it in front of people and you know we got a wide range of, of respondents, so we made sure we had a a, a wide range of, of people across the U.S. Um, bang on, on on CAC's FICO score, and and then we asked them to to complete a survey. And there's a lot of complexities around it that actually make this probably uneconomical for most people as a standalone product. Right? Just firstly, for, you know, well, firstly having the expertise internally. Or from the clients in, in in choosing the hypothesis, which is probably one of the most important parts of the, the these things. Like, how do you choose which questions to validate or hypotheses to validate? And then having the capital and resource and expertise internally to go and source those people. And and you know, because what we also found is that you know, you tell you tell someone to fill out a survey. How do you if you've ever how do you fill out a survey? I don't know how I, I tick them. My eyes closed typically. You know. So finding people that you can trust and that are that are going to complete it and spend the time and you're going to pay them a proper price for that and also that they're going to commit to if you want to call them up and ask a follow-up question if they, if they if they don't give you a, a credible answer then they're going to be willing to do that so finding you know and, and that just lends to the, the structure of our surveys then are going to be typically lower sample size which obviously is a bias, by the way. You know, and we, we do, I list out the biases on here because I think it's important to say, you know, every sample has a bias. Here are the biases I think are in this sample. You can make your own judgment on, on the quality of it. And it's just, again, it's just one data point. You obviously shouldn't take anything as gospel. But our surveys will typically have lower sample size, so fewer respondents, but higher quality respondents. So we, we make sure that we veto and vet everyone to make sure they've actually they're actually they're actually selling cars a decent amount, and they're actually getting financing to a certain extent from CAC. But again, when you not not only from CAC, but you know, I think ten out of eleven of these dealers had 
well, the, the median percentage of loans originated by CAC was around 30%, which again is a bias in the sample, right? Because you're, then you're choosing people that already, already use CAC. So for example, going back to that original question, how do you grow loan volume growth? Well, part of it is growing the existing base you have, the dealer base, so increasing the number of loans on your existing dealers, and there's also getting new dealers. So this survey focuses on how can they actually increase the number of loans per existing active dealer, not this other wide market of getting new dealers, which obviously you can't, you know, it's pretty hard to survey those that don't use CAG because they probably don't reply much or, or it's hard to find them. <laughs> and when they do, it, it, it's typically in the, in the prime area of the market, not the subprime. So we realize that we have to focus on those existing dealers that use CAC. So again, this is a sample, certain sample of that dealer base that I think is quite representative because it's across the US, it's bang on the FICO, uh, FICO score, all in the, mainly independent, there's one franchise in there. Yeah, and we, and we basically, we, we survey them, they, they, they give written responses, we go back and forth, like the Dean done some great work going back and forth and collecting those, aggregated the data, we analyzed it internally, and then we, we, we display all the, ra all, all the raw material, so you can see all the raw material, we aggregate the responses just so it's easy for you to na navigate and digest by question, rather than reading everyone individually, and we put our own kind of, you know, we obviously interested in stuff as well, so we've done our own takeaways. Well, what we learned from it, and you know, you can take that, you can read that, or you can skip that. It depends what you want, but all the wrong, all, all the wrong material is there. So I think this is this is an interesting way to really surface to really showcase how, what you can do with curated primary research, you know, and in a, in a new format that is again, it's probably more work and more too expensive for most other people to want to replicate at least as a standalone product. But I think with our business, in terms of the, the, the position that we have in the industry, in terms of being what we'd hope, to, hope is a, a more curated, high-quality library or, or, or offering, is that we can do, you know, we can do 10, 15 of these a year. And that's a pretty cool, at least this year, and that, that's a pretty interesting, pretty interesting library you're going to have, to, or pretty interesting content format you're going to have to supplement our wider library. To play devil's advocate... On, on this survey in particular, how much are you really going to take in terms of pattern from, from 11 people? My honest sense is if you choose the right people, you can get a lot of it. You can get a, you can get a powerful signal if you choose the right people, right? And again, how many, you know, what's the signal you can get from one interview? It depends on who you're interviewing. <laughs> so, you know, if you're in, if you're interviewing Mark Leonard, I think you're going to get a lot on VMS, right? If you're not, then it's going to be different. So, it, it depends a lot on the quality of the executive. That's why we focus so much on sourcing the best people around. And to source the best people around, you need to get into these networks. And you know, part of our work, we spend a lot of time trying to get into into the world of operators and i think that's hugely powerful to to build trust with them but also just find find good people and and I, so in in this server in particular i think we've got 11 11 of these executives you know, obviously it's nowhere near enough if you want to be statistically significant right 
but this is not trying to be statistically significant. It's trying to give you a high signal, high qualitative signal from from quality primary primary insights. And I think if you read each of these surveys and you look at and you look at the we we lay out exactly the sample, so we show you the um, you know each of the individual dealers and what they are. I think you get a pretty good idea of where CAT can improve, where it's struggling, where it's very strong. And they're very, very common patterns across those dealers in terms of what can what can make them increase their loan volume through CAC. So but again, I think it's up to you know, part of this part of the joy is that it's up it's up to it's up to investors to to handicap what they think it is. <laughs> There's something to me about the the amount of time that goes into actually getting embedded in in the in networks of the right people that is very exciting for for the potential for this work. So just briefly, then, so the reason why we was able to do this, um, let me just tell you right now off the fly, because the reason why we were able to run this survey is because there is one dealer who we basically became mates with that I first met two years ago. So we've been, I've been chatting to him on and off for a couple of years and you know, it just, it just kind of organically went from there, you know? So I think it's partly in fact, it's you know, slightly over two years, but yeah, it, it's that, I think part of the that that also hits on part of this nuanced and intangible advantage we may have in sourcing the best people. It and it basically becomes from and also it's, it's us ingraining our guys on this as well, right? And because we do the work internally ourselves, you know, with 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 some of these executives that they really enjoy this work. You know, some executives just want to be paid the hour. Like you speak to them, they get off. They got do they're doing other stuff, right? They're not really engaged. Sometimes you find these these people that you really connect with, and you might spend an hour and a half on the phone. Then you do another call. You might spend you know, before you know it, you spent three, four, five hours speaking. Five hours of proper conversation about what someone does for their life is a lot of time. You can it's weird how much you can connect with someone. And then where we're doing the work ourselves, you know, CAC might report, and we might we might follow up. Oh, you know, ex dealer. Hi, mate. Did you see the new litigation on CAC? What did you think? On email, you know, and you're chatting. You know, so so that relationship evolves, and then when it comes around, like, oh, have you got have you got twenty dealer mates? Maybe he does have twenty dealer mates, or at least I knows how to go and find them. So I, I think that's part of, of you know that's what we're going to continually do for decades to come. Like I'm just pretty excited in terms of the networks we're going to be in, like. I don't think there's many people on the planet that are going to be able to source as effectively as us. And it's just a case of, okay, if you, if you can source these people, what can you do with them? You know, and, I, and I back us to find a way to curate their insight in a way that is helpful for investors. And that's basically what our, what our product will evolve into and what it is today. Well, we've also got a few operators picking up the phone, asking for access. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why, well, you know, I, I, that, that's also more, we spoke about this earlier, but that's, it's always quite interesting when I, when we get someone in the industry that is particularly interested in understanding what we've written about 
how their industry works. Um, but actually, you know, if we do this work, if we do this work properly, of course they should be interested. If we source the best people in the industry to share what they think about a certain topic, of course, of course, their, their colleagues and their peers are going to be interested. So I think it just comes down to finding the best people and asking the right questions. Like it's not, I mean, it's highly complicated or more than that, but actually it's really simple from at a high level. Execute on that is just really difficult. Let's talk about upcoming surveys and some of the other work underway. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this. We've got Wayfair coming up. We've spoken briefly before about, well, it's, it's quite an interesting example of how so typically in the in in survey land and survey well there's mainly b2c surveys right wafer is, is obviously an online it's an e-commerce furniture business typically a you know 98 five percent of their revenue is from consumers directly but they have a growing and critical part of their business which is supplier services called castlegate which is their which is their fulfillment network um, they are actually, Wafer is actually an, an MVOC, which is effectively like a freight forwarder, right? So they, they're managed, they, they, I think they basically shipped 70,000 TEUs last year, which is puts them up into one of the biggest freight forwarders <laughs> in the US. So they, they have a, they have a kind of integrated bulky supply chain for moving furniture. And one of the key parts of the of the of the bull case, well, at least what I think or what we what we believe is as a hypothesis is that a key part of the bull case is that furniture suppliers will forward position their inventory, their sofas, their tables in Wayfair's warehouses in the US, and then when you're on Wayfair.com and you're shopping, you'll see that their sofa is in stock. And it'll be cheaper because it'll be closer to you. Therefore, you'd be able to turn it quicker and it'll be lower pricing and everyone earns more money, basically. Wayfair turns more, Wayfair does more sales and the, and the, and the supplier turns more inventory. Um, but that's all predicated on actually suppliers putting inventory in their warehouse. So like that's the hypothesis we're looking to validate, which is, okay, well, if you're Mr. Supplier in Vietnam and you have your own factory and you're manufacturing, you know, a hundred tables a day. What are you going to do with those tables? Are you going to call Wayfrop and stick them in, stick them in their warehouse in in the US, or are you going to sell them as quickly as possible? <laughs> like I think I'm pretty sure most of them are going to sell them as quickly as possible because they're cash strapped and they need the money asap. But you know how how could that change? If that could change, what would cause that to change? And is it sustainable? Can it grow? And if it does grow, and Wayfair does have a large amount of this, you know, Far East inventory forward positioned in their warehouses, that's a different story than just being a furniture dropshipper. So that, so that key question is, is basically leading us to, okay, let's see how many suppliers we can find. And similar to CAC, We've got a couple of furniture supplier mates. <laughs> We've called on them. And so we're, we're in the process of of finding some really good furniture suppliers and understanding exactly how this world works. So we'll be publishing a couple of interviews on that, which will supplement the survey. And then we'll be publishing 
a survey, a curated survey on those questions around cost related fulfillment specifically. You know, so why, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Supplier, why do you, what, tell me, how many, how many products, how much volume do you manufacture a month? What are, what are the products are? What's the average sales price? Okay, you've got these at the end of What do you do with them? Who do you sell them to? Why do you sell them there? What, but how much still to wait for? Why don't you sell more? How much do you put in Castle Gate? Why don't you put more? Right? And just keep going through that kind of iterative, Socratic kind of questioning. And then we're going to publish results. So that's one that we're working on. We're focused on. We're also working on XBEL, XBEL, which is the uh, micro cap favorite. Um, we're, we're basically going to be sourcing some installers for that. But that will be in probably next month. So, yeah, I, I think we're pretty. That's a couple of other things we're working on as well. But I think wait, there's the, the first one. We're also working on other other stuff. Dino Polska, the Polish, Polish grocery retailer, and um, we've also got a couple of other Polish names we're working on because we're live chat software, auto partner. Um, and we found a way to crack Poland. So I think it's pretty fun. Like we're, we're really getting into doing this field work, you know, and I think we're just getting started. That's what, that's what I'm, I'm pretty excited about is, you know, before it's been you and I cracking away and you know, me recruiting executives on the phone, recruiting people ourselves. And now we're actually sitting back and we're like, actually, shit, let's go and find the best Polish people or these businesses help us, help us source these guys. All right. If we want to do it in Polish, we can find a Polish translator. We can do that for every company and these different, all these other, all these other European businesses that were off the radar for, for me on my LinkedIn, you know, three years ago. And now all of a sudden they're opening up. Right. So I think we're just getting started on what we can do properly in fieldwork, specifically in Europe. Oh, I'm pretty excited. Spotify's on the radar too. Spotify's on the radar. We're doing media bias for Spotify um, on the podcasting side. That's proven a bit, bit more trickier, basically because I'm not selling any media, selling much media to agencies and other buyers. Yeah, look, you know that's a quite a good example of actually. We won't. I promise you, we won't force anything. If there's nothing to be said and nothing incremental, we will not publish anything. And sometimes, and actually quite often, we're getting a lot better now because we not understand what we're doing. But you know, if we if we're not learning anything incremental, we're not gonna we're not gonna we're not gonna publish it for the sake of it. There's enough people out there that just want to publish content. You know, think they've got a flywheel for the sake of it, and they have got a flywheel, <laughs> right? But we're playing a different game, so we will we will face dead ends, and sometimes. You know, we set out to go and find 20 media buyers at Spotify or 20 agencies or media buyers that were purchasing podcasting ads and we can't find them. <laughs> Mainly because Spotify and selling podcast ads is basically the big, one of your big insights, <laughs> right? They're obviously, their offering isn't good enough yet. And so we're not going to publish something half-baked or try and force something. So we'll keep on working on it. But until we find something that's really incremental to, to what we think is the highest common denominator, which is like 
management or top shareholders, if we can't, if we don't think we can add value to them from our primary insights, then we're not going to publish anything. So it's a pretty high bar, but I think it keeps us on our toes. I mean, I don't think there's much of a much of a story unless we were operating at that level. It wouldn't be wouldn't be that interesting. Yeah. Although it's not very good for my hairline. <laughs> that's partly the cause of the that's partly the cause of the panic attack button, right? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's hard for you to just get, not rid exactly... of, get rid of the hair and, and <laughs> yeah, embrace it. I think along with this podcast, we'll get a photo out and uh, maybe yeah. maybe tag the content with um with a progressive. So this shot. is not exactly a, this is not this is not this is not Buffy's one foot hurdle. <laughs> No, it's not. It's not. But the rewards over time are are great. I think about this often when I'm having a panic attack pushing the publish button. And I'm like, you know, I bet you Larry and Serge didn't have a panic attack when they were <laughs> Google search engine was wrapped in. <laughs> like, you know, there's like, and there's just like, there are just some great businesses <laughs> that exist. And there are some that are more difficult than others. And some people can't accept that. Right? Like some businesses are just better than others, like just categorically. Like Google search is a better business than publishing shit on Heiko. <laughs> Fact. I guess it, 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 I mean, it is. And, and, and there's a few pieces. To, I'm not to saying the story, I want to run right? Google search. Well, well, no, I wouldn't that, mind. But. I mean, that's it. I, don't, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind, but I mean, we were talking about it with with Rocco and Frederick Carlson, and just being clear about what game you're in and what you enjoy doing, mm. and what you could do for a long time. That's the other thing. Well, it's also about like what durable competitive advantage do you actually have, and if it doesn't come from something that you love and that or effectively that you're good at. You know, they're kind of joint at the hip, those two things. But, you know, it's not just about having a good business. Also, what gives you that advantage, you know? And I think there are just some businesses in the world, you know, like classified, right move in the UK, right? That is just a scaled, mature asset that is a cash machine, right? It's very difficult to supplant that. No matter what you do, I could give you a huge amount of money and it would be very difficult. They're just, and, and, and I think that's, that. That's, I think, part of running our business has made me realise like, what Buffett meant when he said that. They're just some businesses are just like I mean, he said like because someday your your idiot nephew is going to run it. <laughs> your idiot nephew. No, I don't think. <laughs> would you trust your idiot nephew <laughs> publishing Heiko? <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but you'd probably trust him in running Google Search. Well, at least a bit more. Yeah, I mean, if you if you get hit by a bus, if you get hit, I, if you I get hit by a bus, it's going to be, gonna be, it's, it's be, gonna be a bit of catching up to do. <laughs> All right, but, and and so it is, and so it goes. All right, that it's it's you know being honest about what game we're in. This is a little different, but there's there's some good work to do. Yeah, I think there's nowhere else I'd want to be. I think part of it is, I think that the lesson, I think the insight is that just from an investment standpoint, right, is when I could, because I, we see it firsthand and we live it, it's like when I'm looking at a business, if I think it's difficult, and you can make your own judgment if you think a business is difficult, but most businesses are difficult. If you don't have someone who loves it, like, I mean, we're speaking now, it's 11 o'clock on a Friday night here. 
London, right? Like, you know, we're having a good time. But if you don't find someone, if I if I don't, if I don't believe that person loves their business as much as I would love to do what what we do, unless it's Google search or Right Move, like, you've got to be pretty damn sure, right, that you're investing in a, in, in a very in a very good business if you don't believe that person loves what they do and it's their life's work. And finding these crazy people that have their life journey, their life's work, you know, in their business. Is actually part of the question, you know. So, because because we most businesses, ninety nine percent of them are just difficult and don't have much of an advantage. And the industries change, and you got to evolve. And unless you're fanatical about it and you think about it twenty four seven, you're probably going to get competed away. Well, and what comes up for me on that is that line from either I can't remember whether it was Munger or Buffett that said it at. At last year's AGM, they said they meet a lot of smart people that think that they can do stuff they don't love in exchange for a lot of money. And, and if you're doing the bottom line that, that I guess I see you know, through, you work, through your work, through, through some of the work that I've done over the years, is if you don't love something, you don't pay as detailed attention. And if you don't pay as detailed attention... You don't evolve. You don't catch things when they, when they're when they're changing, right? To to to. I think I think loving something is we pay attention to what we love, and, and if I think about our evolution and your evolution as an investor over the years, it's a pretty fun thing to watch because your ability, you know, and, and this and I speak about this specifically in the context of field work. And what spending a shitload of time with operators does to you is in contrast to spending a lot of time with investors, spending a lot of time with operators really makes it hard for you to overestimate what you know, right? You realize how spending a lot of time with operators, and I can imagine some people could go out, get out of it with a different lesson, right? Of course, some people could spend time with operators, get arrogant, think they're embedded in the territory and actually, but I think the lesson that, that I've seen you and that I think that we've walked out of this from is, is that lesson as operators as well is a lesson of, of the centrality of humility. If you're going to get anywhere near a, a functioning relationship with the truth, because, because it is complicated. And you have to love the game. You have to love the process. And you have to be like, the other thing is you have to be comfortable, not knowing. Well, the, 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 as soon as you turn something into, you know, clarity, you know, sort well, it's, it's interesting. You've got to be comfortable not knowing. You've also got to be comfortable saying what you think in hard words and and coming up with, with good questions. Because I, I think, and good questions, good working hypotheses, right? Because to, you know, to, for some of the things that we've spent a lot of time on, right? It's, whether it's Burford or like years on, um, whether it's, whether it's Amazon, Years. Um, we're talking about Heiko. Years. Transdime. Years. Realizing how much you don't know, and at the same time, I think having, you know, the 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 chutzpah to to take a view on how value is created and where value flows. It's a paradox. You got to do both at the same time. Maybe I would prefer having Google search. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I would be on a puppy. I don't know what. If you were running Google search, you'd, you'd be on a, you'd be on a boat off, off the Amalfi coast, right? You, you'd, have, you'd have been, you'd have been, you'd have been having lunch with Joe at the Adolfo mm. off, off the Amalfi on a, on a, on a, on a, on a 90 meter pl- pleasure device. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I guess different, different things for different people. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I, I think we're really lucky. I think we can. I think we're we're lucky that this, although the publish button is a is a panic minor panic attack. I think that this is it, it's a way of life. I think I see this as how I would live. You know, if if you set up, I would pretty much live the same way if I wasn't doing this. I mean, obviously, stuff that I wouldn't do, but in terms of the way that I live who I speak to, how I study these things, I would be doing that anyway. So, you know, finding, and this is a good point because it's the reason why this has come up is because when we look, when, I, when I'm studying other companies, it's a question that I go through in my mind because we know how difficult it is to operate these businesses. And unless they love it, you know, unless they really are fanatical about it or it's Google search, like anywhere in between, it's difficult if it's a job for them and, it, and, 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 you know, it's hard, you know, it's not going to work if it's not Google search and, you know, and even if the guy's really fanatical about it, it's still not going to work. So it's finding that, finding those fanatics. So what, you know, who's, who's doing their life's work, how much they really love this game that they're playing. Do they love the process? Do they love the way of life of their business? And, and then also look at the quality of the, of the asset, because no, back to Heiko, for example. I mean, Heiko started as a PMA shop. If Heiko just started, as, if they just stayed as a PMA shop, they wouldn't be Heiko today. Heiko has MRO distribution, special components. They manufacture different things. It's completely different. So, you know, these Mendelssohn's, they love the game. They love their business. Well, I mean, actually, actually, Heiko was founded in 1957 to sell laboratory equipment. Yeah, well, they bought the, they bought. They, the business that they, the, the original business that they bought sold lab equipment, but they owned then engine part of the business that owned the PMA, the first PMA on a old JD 600 Pratt engine that one of the part failed in a, in a crash. And the only other firm on the planet that could manufacture that part was this medical company, which owned the IP to the PMA. And that's how it started. It started what and and you know the Mendelssohn's, you know, you kind of look at that. It was in college and bought it, and then, but but the point is that the business evolved, you know, because he loved because they loved the they loved the game, they loved the business, they loved the way of life, you know. So, you know, who knows what what our business will look like in forty fifty years? You know, but I'm pretty sure that I'll still be speaking to executives all day long and studying companies and investing in them and that fundamentally is not going to change no it's it's so, not it's not it just it just gets more fun so i spend a lot of time talking to people about what goes in our framework for coverage what goes in to what we commit to publishing on and we 
we're very careful about never committing to dates. We let the, you know, the insights are revealed through the work and you have no control over that. And you've got to, in a sense, surrender when it comes to, you know, publication deadlines, because we're not in the business of publishing stuff that's half-baked or that, that's not incremental to, to either mature shareholders, experienced shareholders or owners of the business. Uh, so, you know, let, let's, let's get into, you know, we, we list on our website what we look at and there's, uh, there's maybe 40, 50 businesses on that list. Many of these businesses we've worked on for years. Uh, you can quite obviously and easily split them between large and mid cap. Uh, let's let's get into to what actually drives selection for this list of businesses. And, and why the hell should I trust in practice, right? Frankly, as a long-term investor, what why the hell should I trust IP to, to surface interesting stuff? Well, I think it's interesting how you just you asked that after the conversation we just had because it comes from a lot of it comes from those two things, right? Like call it on a spectrum, right? Have you got a fanatic, an incredible manager, management team, you know, with these, or have you got Google search? Like, have you got an incredible business, like an incredible like Google search? And 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 really, like part of it is, you know, on every other business is on a spectrum, right? They're those difficult businesses that are just run by fanatics that are incredible. And are those incredible businesses that can be run by your idiot nephew and, and trying to understand, you know, those types of assets is part of the framework, like one source of a framework that we'll use. And then, you know, the, the list of companies come out of that learning process and they, no, there's there's certain themes of businesses that we that we're attracted to, um, that I've studied in in over the last you know decade or so, which can be you know you could group them into certain certain ways, um, you know whether that's again serial acquirers or. Um, vertical market software or b2b software you know classic typically known as quality businesses or b2b distributors or middlemen companies that are you know structured within two fragmented sides of the value chain the customers and and and, and suppliers that would be another one the classifieds we've we've looked at not so much recently but historically I've done a bunch of work on that um and then there's, you know, there's various other companies on here that are, um, yeah, these, these kind of low cost, high benefit mission critical assets in the industrial space, whether it's Spirax Sarco or, or yeah, various other assets like that. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's very, and then there's this kind of, uh, this, themes of, of of structural advantages like root density for example that you can um, that you can conceptualize from first principles that you can apply at 
And you could apply that at Eurofins in terms of how they move samples around their network. You could also apply it to Amazon or how they move parcels around their network. You know, and it's the same physical structural advantage that you can apply in different industries. Um, you know, and both businesses are run by fanatics. Or used to, at least Bezos used to be a fanatic, right? I don't know what he's doing now, but you know, and 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 Gilles Martin is pro- classified as a fanatic, probably. So, you know, I, I think what, what what framework do I use to come across that? Like, I don't know, but I think that's the that it comes from a first principle of okay, what is the structural advantage that might exist in 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 a business? How can that be applied? How can you apply that elsewhere? And if you're if you're looking at, you know, and that's that's how we tend to also bring around bring about like comparisons of companies that might not seem obvious on the surface, right? With like, you know, Trans Diamond Constellation software, I see is very very similar. You know, or Eurofins and 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 Amazon or Wayfair, what I would see is somewhat similar in the very, you know, one's e-commerce and one is, you know, diagnostics and testing, testing certification. And so I think there's certain kind of principles that I guess uh, that we think or we have hypotheses around that are true um, that, that we that we you know there's a kind of pattern recognition there that we notice in certain assets and that would surface up on on the coverage list and then beyond that it's a, it's also more about actually that's our hypothesis that's a framework that we go through to understand whether these assets are interesting and then what we'll do is we'll try and find people to help us understand them and really what determines when you actually see a piece of content is have we found great people? Because frankly, I don't know anything about these businesses, really. You know, I just try and learn and curate what people actually do know and actually operate in them. So I, I think that the coverage, why and how we coverage certain cover certain businesses evolves in a more organic way of, 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 of really realizing or appreciating certain structural advantages in businesses certain fanatical management teams and yeah and, and and i guess areas that we think are that create durable lasting value in and that could be as as, as intangible as a as as a as a luxury brand you know as, as a status signaling louis vuitton or or or, 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 or intangible as you know, underwriting capabilities of of of, of Markel or Guy, you know, like it, a, a, an insurance being an interesting space and a business model, or it could be as it could be as niche as as a as ASOS and Sheen's test and repeat supply chain, and you know, and, and that part of that supply chain work comes from understanding amazon supply chain and how they move parcels and actually what about if you move fashion and how does that fashion how is that evolving all of a sudden you go from you know these old legacy legacy fashion retailers to actually sheen and everything in between so you know and i think it really there's certain levels of pattern recognition embedded within although it might not seem like it might just seem like a group of companies right but actually there's Maybe we can do more to communicate that and how we look at these, but there are certain 
patterns embedded within these businesses that that would classify as potentially durable advantages that would create value over time? Well, there most certainly are. And I think you, it's interest bleeds from what you understand about the way value is created in a certain business and, and into analogs for, for that insight. Right. And, and so the, while it is a, a relatively disparate grouping of companies in terms of what these businesses do, the nature of the structural advantages that underpin their ability to create value, that there's, there's a good degree of commonalities. Um, and then I think there's another overlay of, well, one is looking at, you know, broadly, what does well? What has done well for a long time? What can we learn about what's done well? We have our own biases, tendencies, circle of expertise in being drawn towards certain businesses, right? And then, and then there's there's what is what is the you know the, the real big question is what is what is really good that hasn't been recognized as really good yet. And what can we take from what we're learning about some of these established success stories? But 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 it's, but that's the point. Is like you say, Heiko. Like let's take Heiko. Well, you know, why did Heiko do well? Well, Heiko is very different to today to what it was fifty years ago. And and what it done well is you basically invest. You invested with the Mendelssohns on Amazon, right? Like so, you know. I mean. Part part of it is, you know, there are there are common, there are certain patterns that 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 you can recognize in in businesses, but you know, a lot of these long term compounders are largely betting on the jockey, effectively. And you're back in the Mendelssohns, and you're back in Bezos, and you're back in these guys and the Rouse brothers, and you know, and especially over long periods of time. But within that, you know, there are there ain't that many good ideas in the world. You know what I mean? like, in terms of like core advantages, it's not like they're falling off a ground on a tree, you know, you know, these, these kind of network effects, a big word and, you know, brands and like, these are, these are very big kind of, I hate the word mental models, but like, it's not like we're creating anything new. It's just about actually how do you handicap whether it actually exists. Well, and the durability of that, you know. So, I think identifying the companies is is partly pattern recognition, partly our own interest, partly stuff that we think has worked. Then it matters more as like actually, how do you go and create hypotheses to validate whether this actually exists or not, and it's whether it's durable. And that's the hard part. You know, that's that's the real hard part to understand. Like the, the durability of that value creation and whether you're going to capture it or whether it, whether it actually doesn't exist. And that's also the fun part. Well, if I look at that list, it's, it's not going to evolve dramatically over the next year or two. We might drop a few things, pick up a few others. But, but broadly speaking... Well, it's not, there's, not everything, there's not everything on there. But I mean, you know, for, yeah, for example, right? Sartorius and, and Dunner, you know, if you want to do that properly, and that's like six month work right three three you know it's a quarter of non-stop work properly on, on that business you know so it's not like you can 
you know, you're not going to learn, you're not going to, this is not a volume game. And, but there are, you know, with, with our team, we can cover stuff that is particularly interesting in more effective ways, right? With this survey approach, with these ways that we can curate insight and validate these hypotheses quite effectively. You know, I'm pretty excited to see what we can do over time. You know, I think we can get through, I think we can get through 30 to 40 of these a year, basically. You know, some will be longer than others, but some, you know, I've looked at most of these businesses for a decade, so I feel like we're starting from scratch. <laughs>